I want to turn your attention this morning as we just come around uh, what we call God's Word or the Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 6. And I want to just uh, start with in verses, a couple of verses there, verse 31 of Matthew chapter 6. And uh, it's a passage Jesus is speaking. Actually, in fact, many of the verses I share today are just uh, Jesus actually speaking. He's declaring something. So uh, I just want to bring this one to start off to your attention. Matthew 6, you got it? You're there? It'll be on the screen, but if you have your own uh, device or Bible, please read it there. Um, this is the uh, international version, New International. It says, um, Jesus is speaking. He says, so don't worry. <laughs> that's a great line, isn't it? <laughs> we just stop there. I think that's a great sermon. <laughs> just don't worry. <laughs> but thankfully, God gives us the reasons and the know-how and the why we shouldn't. He says, don't say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? People who are ungodly run after all those things. Mm, that's Jesus speaking. Your Father who is in heaven knows that you need them. But put God's kingdom first, do what he wants you to do, then all of those things will be given to you. Jesus Christ identifies three basic um, human, human needs that we have in that verse, uh, at verse 31. He says, you, you know, we need nutritious food, we need clean water, and we need clothes to protect us from the elements. Um, and, and Jesus says, don't run after those things. And when I think about the reality of that, that is still relevant for today. Jesus, this was written um, some, you know, about 50 or so years, Matthew wrote his gospel after Jesus is, had died on the cross. So this is written, you know, around 2,000 years ago. I want to say those words are still relevant today because the reality is, is, is um, I see all the time uh, that people run after those things. If the very first one, it says, you know, um, don't run after what we eat. Do you know, more and more there seems to be a build-up of an emphasis upon food. Do you know there's a whole channel that you can watch now? It's just on food. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Food's important. It's a basic need, isn't it? All of us will need some nutrition if you're not fasting in the next 24 hours. So we'll need some food. But isn't it, it seems like people build their lives sometimes around food. Got to get food. Got to have food. When I worry, I need more food. When I stress, I need more food sometimes. And then we see Jesus says, um, what shall we drink? You know, I spent um, three years along with a group of us from this church on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. Not every Saturday night, Sunday morning, there was a team of us um, talking to people whose one ambition in life was to get drink into their system on a Saturday night in the, in the um, nightclub in, um, precinct in Gladstone. And I met many drunk people, and I thought, for some of them, that was their ambition. I just want as much drink as possible so I can forget the woes and the problems I face. Or I just want as much drink as possible because I love to feel happy. i got a better way of feeling happy. What do you reckon? Um, but uh, people run after drink. And I was there passing along with you, passing out bottles of water, um, trying to help them to see there's something better than alcohol, isn't there? So people, I think we would have to agree, run after drink. I know that is a bit of a different context. The third thing that they say is, don't run after what you wear, what you wear. It's okay. We're a church of families, so stop being so dis hassled. You look worried. 
what we wear. Do you know that they, they design clothing these days that no one will ever wear, and they call it fashion? People run after the, the times haven't changed. We run after things that, and Jesus, he must have thought, looked out into the future in 2017 and said, you know what, they'll still have the same problems. Because it, it is an honest statement by Jesus. Jesus identifies, and what Jesus goes on to say is the important thing. He says, you know something, there's something that you've got to put first above all those things. There's something far better than those things. Now, the reality is, if you think about it, those three things, clean water, nutritious food, and clothing on our back, is something that we need every day. Every day. And I think God would just would say, you know what? I don't want you to worry about those things. I want you to put something first. And what he declares is, he says, would you put me first, even above those things? And you say, just wait a second. Those things are so essential. If I don't get those things, exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. Would you trust him with even the basic necessities of life? Trust him, even with, as you put him first. It's not like you neglect to drink or eat or put clothes on. That would not be a good idea. But the reality is, is that if we would just continually realize those things are not to be worshipped or to put over and above what he says should be first, because he's the provider of our needs. He's the, what they say in scripture, a Jehovah Jireh, which is another wonderful name, and it means our provider. So we see Jesus teaches and identifies that life going well is not determined by doing certain things, but by doing certain things first. Okay, it's not determined by doing certain things, but by doing certain things first. Jesus says, put me first. He says, do what I ask you to do first. And uh, if you do that, life has so much better opportunity to go well, to live in prosperity and blessing and hope and a future, live in encouragement. Uh, when you put certain things first, and the first thing he identifies in Matthew chapter uh, 6 here, he says, if you put my kingdom and me first, me first. As I've said over these last couple of, of weeks as we've done this series, uh, if you, you know, what you put first determines what comes next. And if you don't like what's been coming next, change what you put first. If you don't like what you're reaping, change what you're sowing. Pretty simple, isn't it? But it's not as easy sometimes as we think. So I want to identify, look, Jesus even goes a little bit further and he says in Matthew 22, uh, 37 to 39, he says this. He says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, love him with all your mind. This is the what? Come on, this is the first and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, if you've ever tried to love people that seem a little bit unlovable, you know what you need to do is try to stop love them first and love God first, and you'll find you'll have such more of a heart of empathy and compassion to love the unlovable, because it determines what you put first. He says, love me first with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your uh, soul, that emotional part of you, love. See, so God, is a, he, shows us some, he shows us a progression of what we need to put first in our lives. 
and uh, he says, you know, relationships go so much better when you put me first. In actual fact, he says, you know what, you'll even love yourself. You'll even have a healthier self-esteem. You'll even have a healthy identity if you love me first, because I give you that. I give you so much of a better outlook on yourself. Sometimes people walk around in society hating themselves and putting on such a front, but they just don't like themselves. I've got good news for you. Love God, and you better love yourself. So there's something we've got to put first. He says, that's the first commandment, is to love God. It's the first truth. It's the thing you need to put first. Um, so I want to identify from Scripture three things. These are not the only exclusive three things, but three things that Jesus said put first in our lives. Three things that if we would put first in our life, you'll help you to navigate life help you to be purposeful in life, help you to have some focus and direction in life if we put these things first. If we do, productivity will be our reward. There will be fruitfulness. There will be a hope. There will be a future for us. And let's have a look at them first. This is the first one I want to bring to your attention this morning that Jesus talks about placing first. And the th thing that he says is, he says, don't give first place to self. Let's look at this passage in Matthew 20. Um, this passage in Matthew chapter 20 is when there's a lady, a mother, uh, who comes with her two sons who happen to be disciples of Jesus, James and John. And uh, she's called the sons of, uh, they were the James and John were the sons of Zebedee. That was obviously the dad's name. Here's the mother, unnamed. We haven't got a name for the mother, but she comes to Jesus. Two of uh, Jesus' disciples said, would you allow James and John to be on the left and right hand side of you when you get to your kingdom in heaven. And Jesus doesn't deny them that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say no to them. He just also sees beneath the surface and he sees something of the element of self-promotion here and he addresses it in this passage. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus called them to himself. Who did he call to himself? He called the disciples to himself. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you guys, and probably there might have been some ladies, who, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Wow. Uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Look at verse 27. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave or servant. Let him have a heart of not selfishness, but selflessness. Jesus says, you know, you really want to move forward in life? You've got to kill the old man, and that's not your dad. It's the old part of you. It's the old part of you that wants to sit on the throne of your life and say, I'm going to rule over and above what uh, anything else. You know, the Bible says uh, when we come to Christ, we become new creations. Isn't that true? Behold, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. And you might say this morning, well, oh man, it doesn't seem like it. You know, that's talking about a process and not just a one-off event, that verse. It's a process of the old passing away and the new taking place and the closer that you draw near to God the more that you find the new man the new person takes over and the old fleshly person dies the selfish part of us isn't that wonderful and you know what God says will destroy your life if you allow self to continue to rule on the throne of your heart above uh, God ruling in the part that part of your life 
um, Jesus is addressing this whole selfishness here because he identified that uh, in the hearts of his disciples, this was his chosen 12, two of them have got this issue about wanting to be first and be recognized and be promoted and be above others. The other disciples weren't too excited about this, and uh, if you read that passage, but they had to deal with it. Um, if you were to, the truth is, uh, the people who have impacted this world, if you were to look down through the annuals of history, you can identify that some have impacted this world for incredible good, and yet some have impacted this world for incredible bad. And, uh, you know, it's all based upon their motivation of whether they wanted to promote selfish things or they wanted to promote selfless things. If we were to take it the Second World War, you've got two leaders, two men. You've got the German leader, Hitler. I'm sure he started well, but unfortunately, he, he, he didn't finish the race very well. And unfortunately, that precious man uh, becomes so... Uh, if you read his, uh, a bit of his story, became so engulfed and so self-embracing on what he wanted to achieve. And as the result of that, millions of people uh, were destroyed and lost their lives. It was such a selfish ambition in the end. Ultimately, he killed himself as well. That's not a good finish, is it? That's where selfishness takes us, folks, down a destructive path. That's why Jesus addressed us and said, come on, you've come to be a servant, not a, not a, a master. Uh, if you were to take another man in the same period of time, in the Second World War, 1939 to 1945, you'll see his name was Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister. And his main purpose in life was to, to br bring the British people and the people of Europe, France, and everybody associated with this war through so that they survived. His motivation was to bring humanity out victor, not his own personal agenda. And, he was, and he's been renowned for that, and he's been hailed for that, and he's been um, praised for his motivation in, in those times. And so we see selfishness as such a destructive Thing. Selfishness will destroy your marriage, it will destroy your relationships, it will destroy your occupation, it will destroy your life. I'm not saying that we don't have times where we need to place, um, look after ourselves. Of course we do. We need to care for ourselves. That's why Jesus says, love yourself. It's just what you put first. It's just what you put first. And the closer you get to Him, the more of a healthy identity you have to then make decisions about what you need to put first and, and what you need to, um, how you need to uh, not have selfishness and, and, and what boundaries you need to have in life. But it all comes as you put Him first and then also realize you're not here to have people serve you, but we're actually here to serve others. It can be incredibly uplifting and rewarding, can't it? Uh, incredibly. D.L. Moody, the wonderful American evangelist, in the time when there were still slaves, and there were still you know, slaves in American history, and there were still masters, he said, the measure of a person is not how many people serve them, but how many people they serve. And it's still true today. So important. What you place first. Um, Paul actually said this, listen to this. There's a guy called Paul, he wrote a letter in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he says, Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any common sh sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness, compassion, and make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love for one another, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Isn't that powerful? What's he saying? He's saying, he's saying this. If you've got any connection with God, 
if the love of God is flowing in your life and God has touched your heart, that should, um, that should build up and that should, the end result of that can be that you'd actually not have selfish ambition, you'd actually have a, have a desire to serve and help and support and put selfish, um, um, selfish ambitions aside and actually to be able to have ambitions to see others increase, others touched by God's love, others John the Baptist saw Jesus walking along the Jordan one day and he says this, I must decrease and he must increase. What a heart. What a heart. And you know what God would say? It's the heart that he, um, he's excited about. It's the heart that he wants to see happen in all of our lives, putting aside the selfish ambitions. I, uh, I was uh, once again reminded as I read the story uh, of uh, the sinking of the Titanic Everybody know what the Titanic was? It was the unsinkable ship, remember? And in, um, of course, 1912, on the 14th of April, the unsinkable ship sunk, didn't it? I think it sunk in the Atlantic Ocean. It was one of those oceans on the top end of the world. And uh, tragically, of the 2,000, let's just get it correct, of the 2,227 passengers, only 705 passengers survived. That was not a good maiden voyage, was it? Um, and if you knew you were going to die, you probably never would have jumped on it. But everybody said it was unsinkable, unsinkable. And you know, in the process of that boat sinking, there were some incredible examples of selfishness and some incredible examples of selflessness. The captain, uh, the captain himself, talking of, of self-sacrifice, Edward Smith, it talks about how he stood alone on the bridge of the ship as the ship sunk. And uh, by himself, and eventually, as it took him down into the water, his last breaths were seen, recorded by the engine room mechanic, Harry Senior, that he was found lifting a child above the water level because the water was below zero. With his last breaths, he tried to save others. That was the captain. I find that incredibly moving and incredibly self-sacrificing as he knew that his life was waiting away, and yet he tried to save others. It talks about, it was reported that many men... Um, out of the act of selflessness, said goodbye to their wives and children as they put them on lifeboats and sat on the deck calmly as the ship went down, waiting for the cold water to engulf them. It talks about the self-sacrifice of a quartet of violin players. Remember the movie? Um, and, and there was uh, the violin players sat on the deck, continuing to calm the passengers as they hopped on the lifeboats. They continued to do that until they could no longer remain on the level, and they just slid down the ship into the cold water and were all lost. What self-sacrifice. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, on the other side of things, there was incredible selfishness in that story, in that un thing that folded that night. Unfortunately, we know, we know the names of the people that have passed away, but Bruce Ismay, chairman of the company who built the Titanic, White Star Line, um, slipped into a lifeboat where there were women and children, and... Uh, he was scorned as a coward for the remaining 25 years of his life that he lived. That would make you want to go back and just jump in the water and, no, I wouldn't. But, you know, Daniel Buckley slipped into a lifeboat by wearing a woman's clothing and survived. Um, there's one story of a um, the lifeboat that only had 12 people in it. The lifeboats could occupy 25 
And in that one lifeboat that only had 12 people that rowed away from the t- sinking Titanic, there was a rich banker. He paid everyone 25 pounds to not go back and pick anybody up because he didn't want his lifeboat capsized, what he thought might happen. I think, my goodness, could you live with yourself? I'm just glad we've got a God of mercy and grace. I'd have to seek forgiveness. <laughs> Selfishness. Other lifeboats, they say, lashed out at anybody trying to board their lifeboat so they didn't become capsized and fall into the freezing water. Incredible selfishness, incredible selflessness. Desperate people scrambling for selfish reasons. Preservation of life. The definition of selfishness is the act of placing one's own needs and desires above the needs and desires of others. I want to tell you who's at the forefront of selfishness. I want to tell you uh, today who who continues to inspire selfishness in my life and your life. And it's nothing less than the devil himself. Because that's the life he lives and he continues to live. He wants to take you down. And if he gets you so consumed on yourself and you and your problem and your issue and to play the victim in life that you'll never be fruitful or productive jesus says you know what die to self put me don't put yourself first because there's a productive and incredible life incredible life awaiting for us you know the titanic's just not a story of tragedy and triumph it's a parable for humanity it's a parable because what selfishness reigns in our, when selfishness reigns in their society people suffer and drown in the undertow of course of the me first attitude and uh, I want to just encourage us this morning. Jesus says, um, you know, uh, you've not come here uh, to be served, but you've come to serve. You know, if we continue to serve our community, if we continue to serve His church, I mean, how productive could we be for God's kingdom? It'd be powerful, wouldn't it? If everybody's done something, just one thing, they would be powerful in service into His purposes. I tell you what, it's nothing. No wonder the gates of hell should not prevail against the church of the living God. Is because when everybody rises up and says, hey, I'm not here just for me, I'm here actually for others. The Salvation Army was birthed. By General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Remember, he got up, he stood up, he was going to preach a great message at a conference for the Salvation Army, and he got up and he said the word, others. He repeated it maybe four or five times and sat down. Everybody applauded him. They got it. They got it. So when Philippians, Paul spoke in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, you know, speaking of God's love, and then he, straight away he says, speaking of us having not selfish ambition, and loving one another, uh, we've got to see the reality. Sincere love for God and care for one another are connected. And when we uh, another, and connected in the sense that we can't, we love God, there is a flow on effect that we don't have a selfishness, but we have a selflessness. Let's move on. Okay, here's the second thing that Jesus says about what we need to put first. Number two, he says, give attention to your inner person first. Now, this might seem a contradiction to the first point, but it's not. It's not. Matthew chapter 23, 25 and 26 says, How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You pretenders. That's a great word, isn't it? You pretenders. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside you're full of greed. You only want to satisfy yourself. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean, also clean. What's it say in verse 26? Blind Pharisees, what? First, clean the inside of the cup. Give it, so what's Jesus saying? He's saying give attention to your inner person before you give attention 
to the outer person or all the things in this world. Give attention to your inner person. Jesus is emphasizing this. This is what he said. He's talking about that emotional part of your life, that soulish part of your life, or where all your emotions and thoughts and personality and character flow out of here, out of our, I suppose, that, that heart within us. He's talking about that. He says, give attention to that. Because when that's healthy, when that's good on the inside, guess what? The outside will be a lot better as well. And he uses the illustration of, of, um, of a cup. He says, you know, when the cup, and, the, and he talks about a plate as well, but we'll just use the cup this morning. When the cup, you know, the Pharisees, you guys look so good on the outside, but the truth is on the inside of the cup, it's dirty, it's filthy. And whatever you put into that cup will be contaminated because the inside is not really clean. He says, you know what? If you clean the inside, Jesus says, if you get the inside clean, the outside will, will go so much better for us. Life will go so much better for us. I, um, I have one of these cups here. This is a cup that we have at home. And, you know, I, just, I was thinking of this cup this morning because on this side of the cup, it says cleanliness is next to godliness. Okay? And uh, I thought... Where is, I've always thought when I've used this cup, not that I've used it too much to be honest, but um, I've always thought, where is that verse in the Bible? Cleanliness is next to godliness. And you know, I've never found it. But I think this must be the closest one to it. Because this cup is a great representation of what that says. Because on the outside, what color is it? White. Um, it, looks, it looks clean. It looks brilliant. But you know, when you go on the inside, uh, it's one of those wonderful cups you give to the people because you want to just, you know, give them something of a surprise. Because as they drink down through their drink, you never let them pour their drink into this. You give them a drink, this cup full. Because on the bottom of this cup is a ceramic moth. So when you take the opportunity to give them this, and they finally get to the bottom of the cup, I love the surprise look on their face. So if you ever come to our place and I give you this cup, you just remember, you can just politely say, that's not, I'm not going to drink from that one. Thankfully, it's a ceramic moth, but when you're drinking it and you've got a bit of tea or coffee or Milo kind of swooshing around and the dregs in the bottom, it looks so real. And the, the, the faces of the people who drank out of this cup and seen this moth are just, just priceless. <laughs> I've enjoyed giving this to people. But you know... The reality is, the perception is that it looks so clean, looks so good. And you know, the perception this morning is, oh, look okay. You look okay. You look fantastic. But you know what? The outside appearance has got nothing to do with your wholesome, healthy lifestyle. It, it, I, I know the outside is, is important, but it's nowhere near as important what happens in here. And Jesus says, would you address the inner person first? Would you just address that? And if it's painful for you to address the inner person, would you be big enough to say, God, I need help to deal with that inner person? Because there's some real struggles there. There's some real battles I face. There's some real emotion. There's some things that really tick me off, and there's some problems I need to deal with. Would you be big enough to say, I, I, I know no better person than to allow ourselves to come and draw near to God and say, God, come on. I just want you, I need you just to, uh, just to deal because I want to put the inner person first by dealing with what's in there. Because, you know, who knows? Rubbish in, rubbish out. But good stuff in, good stuff out. Isn't that true? And so, come on, it's very important. You know, um, if I'm honest with myself, um, the only thing that I will leave on earth after I'm gone of any worth has got nothing to do with 
material possessions has got nothing to do with the outside of the cup. It's got everything to do with the attitude of my heart and the, and the, and, and the um, uh, I suppose, the reputation in some ways that we leave in the residue of good stuff in the hearts and lives of other people. You know, if I, <coughs> when I look at my, my dad, actually, I'm not going to need a drink of water. Did you anybody just get a drink of water for me? <coughs> you could use this cup. Okay, I think my voice is right, just about. (laughs) Thank you. (coughs) If I'm honest with myself, and uh, (coughs) when I look at my dad, (coughs) what's wrong with my voice? (coughs) When I look at what my dad, when he passed away, in all the qualities that he left, the wonderful attitudes of selflessness that I think about his life, it wasn't, it, it, to be honest, it'll never be the bank balance that he left me. He actually hasn't left anything because it was passed on to my mum and my mum's still alive and that's wonderful and that's good. But it's got to do with the attributes of his heart, his love for his children, his faithfulness to his wife for over 50 years. I reckon that's wonderful to celebrate that. Um, his giving nature. Always remember, I was driving away from um, from Brisbane one day to come back to Gladstone, and um, and uh, my dad had um, some spare cash. And just before I drove out through the car window, he said, "Hey, do you want some money?" You know, just like that. And I said, um, "You know, it was a hundred bucks or something." And I thought, mm. and I thought, yeah, "Yeah, I do." But you know what I said to him? I said this. I said, "Hey, Dad, keep it till I really need it." I didn't really need it at that moment. And he said, oh, okay. But, you know, um, he was just generous. He's, he was hardworking in his philosophies of life. His desire to take the moral high ground. I love that about my dad, to take the moral high ground. He didn't, he didn't, he grew up in an age where you just morally were, tried to seek to live upright. And, and then in his final days, he, his acknowledgement of God in those last days as I prayed with him. I just love that. And he, all his life, I think he had a belief in God, but he never, he never verbalized it. You know, I think they're the qualities, aren't they? They're the inner qualities of our heart that are so vital and so important for our existence. And I just want to encourage us this morning, not as only does Jesus say live selflessness lives, but he also he says live lives acutely aware of what's going on inside your heart. So that you never allow what's inside your heart to be like the Pharisees and polluted and dirty and bad. So that what comes out of your life then eventually will be exactly what you put in. Let there be a continual wiping away of the dross in our lives. A continual, because the truth is we're not perfect, are we? But that's not an excuse to not chase hard after God and, and His righteousness and His love for us. So the second thing I see is that He, that Jesus clearly says, would you make sure that you give attention first to your inner soul, more than the world around you, you know, more than the, um, sometimes the outward shell. Now, I exercise, you exercise, 
I, and the reason that we do that, hopefully, is because we want to little, live a little bit longer so we can be effective and see on this earth for God's purposes. But, you know, we've got to be careful that this shell, this tent that we live in, does not become the thing that we live our lives by. Because the truth is, it's going to rot and die in a grave one day. And it's not going to be worth much. But it's the inner person that's so valuable. David wrote this psalm, the guy called David who became the king. He was the shepherd boy. He was the guy with the stone and killed Goliath. You know him. And he wrote Psalm 23. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then in verse 3, he says this, He restores my soul. Soul meaning the inner person of what I said before, your emotions, your feelings, your grief, your joys. All those things in our soul. And David said, you know what, God? You restore my soul. If there was ever a person in history who needed a restored soul, you'd have to, and if you looked at David's story up to this point, you'd have to agree he needed uh, to restore that area. Because the very man that was his mentor and encourager was his father-in-law called Saul, who was the king of Israel, became the very man who hated him with a vengeance to the point where he wanted David dead. I mean, some of us complain, don't complain. Some of us think we've got bad in-laws. You go and talk to David. His father-in-law wanted him dead. And yet was the very man that offered him praise and uplifted him at one stage. And for 10 years, David roamed through the countryside, living in caves, as David as Saul sought to kill him and find him. That's, no wonder David said, God, would you just restore my emotional being? Because it, it, it can get a bit shot where I've got people who hate me, people who don't who want me dead. I can't go back to my wife. She's been married off to another person. I mean, the emotional turmoil you must have went through. I want to tell you today that God is a restorer of your soul. He's a person who wants to restore the inside. We get so captivated with what is in the mirror sometimes. We forget that we need to look past the mirror, need to look past the face, past the body, and we need to see, God, you really want to deal with the inside. Here's the third thing that we need to make sure that we don't put first in the last thing this morning. Um, and I find this significant because Jesus said something about this. Matthew chapter 6, 24. Jesus said this. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Menon, money, whatever terminology you like to use. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says, you can't serve these two things. And I, and I look at this verse, you have to, and it says you have to put God first so that money doesn't grip our hearts and destroy our lives. Because it says in another passage, the love of money, not money itself, the love of it, actually, has, it, it talks about how it's taken some people out and destroyed their lives, the love of it. And you know, we all agree with that. You know, Jesus never said you can't serve God in fast cars or you can't serve God in food, you can't serve God in football, but he did say you can't serve God in money. Not that we should serve fast cars, food or football. I'm just saying, why didn't he say all those other things? Because I think he realized there's something really significant about finance that we've got to be careful We've got to have the right relationship with finance. We've got to sort out this relationship with finance. Jesus knew that, and that's why he states this. Because 
if you get um, if you get that relationship right, you have much better chance of going well, not not just in parts of your life, but in all of your life. If you can sort out, if you, if you if you get the relationship with money out of alignment, you can have so many problems in many areas of your life, because then life revolves around what I got to get, instead of what can I give, which is a, such a different attitude of life. Um, so Jesus actually takes the time to say it very clearly. Hey, you guys, you can't serve me and money. And I think about this, and I think, why was it so important for you to mention this one particular thing, Jesus? You didn't say it about you can't serve God and fast cars, but you did say it about money. Why is that? Because I think God knows the, the heart, the human heart so well. And he knows that there's one thing that will try to consume us is the greed for stuff or money. And so he addresses it very specifically. And he says, come on, come on, make sure that it doesn't take over your life. Keep it in the right context. There's, there's a passage that you know in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, in the last book of the Old Testament part of the Bible. In Malachi chapter 3, 10 is a verse that some of us identify very clearly. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I find this interesting because this is the only time that God ever says to try him out. He says, don't just believe me, at, um, believe at face value, try me out on this. He never says it about anything else, but he says it about finance. He says, will you just try me out? He says, just test me, just give and see what I'll do back. Now, do we give to get? No, but if just the, the motivation of God here is, hey, what, you just, won't you understand that as you don't keep money in your heart as the number one thing and you're giver in that, that you know, you'll find that uh, I'll just continue to be your provision and provider. And there's people here, who in, I know in this church, who just say, amen, I've been living that for decades. Amen? Four of us. Wonderful. I thought this was important this morning. Uh, so, don't, you know, God says, come on, understand that uh, humanity, hum humanity actually, uh, he's saying, all you, all of the, a part of the human race, try me out. And we can have the questions, just wait a second, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my rent? And God says, listen to me, just try me. He's not saying take your bill money and, and no, he's just saying, give the extra you've got, or give the tithe, which is 10%, and then sometimes we talk about first fruits, which we're going to be doing in a couple, starting that process in a couple of weeks. There's opportunities, he says, I want you to make sure, you know, I've discovered that the way I don't keep money first in my heart is by actually giving. And it continues to keep the right money in the right priority. Because it's essential to all of us. We need it. We live on it. We buy food. We buy clothes. We buy water. Those very things that were mentioned in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't worry about, are bought and purchased through finance. So I believe if you can trust God with money, you can trust God with anything, to be honest, because money gives us the essential things of life, and I'm going to trust Him with my life. Um, and of course, the Bible says it's the love of it. It's not money itself. That's the root of so much evil. And we know today there's wars being fought around this world today because of the greed of money and the more land acquisition. And land in some countries means wealth. 
if you get land these days, there's wealth involved in it. We know that, you know, one, one of the top three um, reasons for breakup of marriage is the love of money. Unfortunately, in couples not being able to agree on money and how to use it, it's the love of money that causes so much evil. And that's why God, Jesus himself says, come on, keep it in the right perspective. Um, uh, keep it in the right place. Don't allow it to rule your heart. Uh, money provides, of course, all that we need. And God says, I will provide all. I can be your provision. And uh, I find that wonderful. I love that some of the testimonies of men and women who've, who've had lots of money, but have never allowed it to become uh, the root of all evil in their hearts. There's a gentleman called uh, Robert Kenneth Kraft. Uh, you might recognize the surname, Kraft Cheese Company. Um, um, common products are Kraft Cheddar Cheese. I don't know if that's common today. Is cheddar cheese out there? Um, he was a man who was a Christian who had very strong values, and one of those strong values was to do with his finance. And from his humble beginnings, he, uh, he would push a milk and cheese cart through the streets of New York as, in his young days. And his company, his company went on to become a billion-dollar company. And he got someone else to push the, the, the carts through the streets of New York. In actual fact, he never had to push the carts any longer. And in those early days, Mr. Kraft made a commitment to tithe and offerings on the meager amount that he got from his cart run. And as he did that, and as he's faithful, he saw God's provision. There's another name that you might recognize, William Colgate, Colgate Toothpaste Company. He was a Christian who had strong beliefs in giving. In his early days, he'd give a tenth of his income and then eventually gave two tenths of his income. Halfway through his career, he'd give 50% of his own personal profits to the work of the Lord in his church and around the world. 50%. In his last days, in his last decade or two of his life, Mr. William Colgate actually gave 100% of all his personal profits to the things of God and what he wanted to do. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. But for him, he gave 100% and he just lived off his earnings from the past. He wasn't, a, see, money hadn't gripped his heart. Even though he, he gripped money, he took a hold of it, it hadn't gripped his heart. And they were living examples of incredible uh, testimonies of what Jesus said, don't, so you can't serve uh, these, uh, one of these, you've got to serve one of them first. You'll hate one and love the other. And uh, what an example. I want to say that, you know, Jesus just says there's some things you need to put first. There's things like, yes, don't put selfishness first. And then he says, make sure that you work on the inner person and not the outer person first. And then he says, hey, make sure that you put money bef not before our God, put him first. I want to encourage us and inspire us and challenge us that I just know that there's productiveness and fruitfulness in when we put Him continually first in our lives. When I was uh, at Gladstone State High School as a young Christian, I had a, a, a person who was in one of my classes come up to me and said, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? You're, you're a believer in that Jesus thing. And I'd like to tell you that I gave it back to him and gave him the four spiritual laws and witnessed and he bowed down and I prayed the pray, sinner's prayer with him and he committed his life to Christ. But you know, in, in such a shock, and as he came up and just kind of out, we weren't even having a conversation before this. Do you know what I said? I said, no, I'm not, and walked away. I felt so 
bad. I felt like I denied Christ. I felt, I suppose, a bit like Peter when he denied Christ, and yet he was reinstated. And I said, God, I'll never do that again. Never do that again. So I was in a youth meeting about a year later. It was in a church, not this church, another church in Gladstone. And there was a whole bunch of young people, and there was a great speaker, and he gave a challenge. And I was sitting amongst some friends, and he gave the challenge, and he said, would you stand up if you really want to live for Christ? And I was a Christian. I was a believer in Jesus. And I thought, what do I need to do here? But I felt this prompting in my heart, the tugging in my heart of the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you need to stand up for Christ. This is your opportunity. And I felt this prompting. You promised me you'd never deny me again. I said, oh, God, you've always got to remember. (laughs) But, you know, I had another tugging in my heart. All my friends around me were giggling and saying things like, shame. I'm not going to stand up. Shame. Who would ever stand up? And ultimately, I rose to my feet. And I heard little remarks from the friends. And probably they weren't the friends I needed to hang around with if they were going to do that. I stood up and I said, God, I I continue to acknowledge you. And I continue to to never deny you again. And I'm just so glad I did. So, Father, I want to put you first. Despite what the friends say, despite what they think is a shameful thing. You know, God in heaven doesn't think it's a shameful thing. He thinks it's the best thing. And he looks down and he says, well done, well done. Maybe not the well done, good and faithful servant that we'll get in heaven, but hey, come on, keep on pushing on, keep on going on. Can we just all stand this morning? Are we going to close? Where do you need to put God first today? Where do you need to put him first? Because what you put first will determine what comes next. And if you don't like what's been coming next, change what you put first. Change what you put first. God calls you today. He's beckoning you. He's long. He's saying, come on, put me first. Put me first. Hmm. If you're here.